long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with disasters, what happened, why it happened, and what we can learn from them. As an anxious person, learning about these whys helps me feel more in control of my own safety. As an empath, I just want to know and tell the human stories behind these disasters. Who survived, who didn't, and most importantly, how they lived. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I hate that disasters happen, but since they're gonna, I want to learn from them. Whether it's an act of God, act of man, or accident, I'll cover it all here. So I hope you'll buckle up real tight and come along for the ride with me. This is the Disaster Queen Podcast. Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of the Disaster Queen Podcast. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and today I'm going to be taking you through some of my personal memories of disasters that have happened during my lifetime. So this is our end to season one. Thank you so much for being with me through these 14 episodes. And we are going to start season two off very soon on November 16th. But let's wrap up season one with some of my personal memories and get to know your disaster queen a little better. So what I'm going to be doing today is just taking you through uh four different disasters that happened during my childhood or young adulthood and my personal memories of those and what I thought at the time, where I was when they happened and how they affected me. So this is just memory based, you guys. This is just me, just off the top of my head. So it's not, I don't have a list of sources for this. If I get something wrong, please forgive me. Know that I'm going into this with the best intentions, but the human memory can be faulty. As we know, lots of people have this different accounts of the exact same event because we're all different. And we remember things like our brain wants to and not necessarily how they actually happened. But I wasn't there personally for any of these disasters. These are just major world events that happened that were disasters that I recall strongly and can remember my reactions to. And so I hope you enjoy this look inside my mind. Also, I'm in a very like hyper mood today. I I've, I don't know what was in my coffee this morning, but I'm feeling good. I'm feeling amped up. So my I'm a little silly and ridiculous during this. I really apologize, but that's just me. You're going to get to know your disaster queen a little better today. So let's go ahead and get started and start remembering. Okay, here we go. Now, I will say before I start that none of these are disasters that I have covered yet. So I will be covering some of these in the future for sure. So I'm not going to go into super in depth about what happened. Just going to tell you the basics and my personal memories. They are all disasters that you all will have heard of. So for context, I was born in 1977. And these are all disasters that happened during my childhood or young adulthood. And I have noticed when it comes to my memory of disasters that I have much clearer memories of things that happened before I had young children. If you're a mom or a dad, you might understand that. But uh, for instance, we covered the Boston Marathon bombing. And though I remember when that happened and I remember the manhunt and the capture of the perpetrators, I don't have a lot of strong memories like where I was when I heard about that, stuff like that. And I think it's because I had three small children at the time and my brain space was and my emotional capacity were just extremely, extremely occupied. So today we're just going to do disasters that happened before I had children so we can get the full emotional 
um, and memory impact here. So we're going to start off with my childhood. The defining disaster of my childhood, and maybe yours if you're a Gen Xer like me, was the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster on January 28th, 1986. Like I said, I'm not going to go into deep detail, but what you need to know is that this was a routine space shuttle mission, and it featured the very first teacher in space or civilian in space. It was a flight that had a lot of notoriety and excitement from the American public because NASA and the U.S. government were trying to get people interested in space flight again. Shuttles had become sort of routine, and so they they came up with the Teacher in Space program to do that. And the teacher that they chose, her name was Krista McAuliffe. She was a high school civics teacher from New Hampshire, I believe. Again, if I'm wrong about that, I apologize. This is totally coming out of my memory. So I was eight years old and in second grade on January 28th, 1986. And I was in school when it happened, and we did not watch the launch, and we were not told about it. After school, I had a chorus rehearsal. I don't know why they didn't call it choir. They called it chorus. So after school, I was picked up by a friend's mom who was also picking up her daughter. We often carpooled because our families lived pretty close. And I went to a private school, so it wasn't like super close to our house. So the mom of this family, Mrs. Holsinger, hey, Mrs. Holsinger, hey, Karen, um, they're still friends of our family to this day, picked us up, picked me and my friend Karen up. And when we got in the car, she said, did they tell you what happened with the space shuttle? And we said no. And she proceeded to tell us that it had exploded and that all the astronauts had died. And I remember being, you know, shocked and saddened. I was only eight years old, so I didn't have a lot of, you know, emotional depth or experience uh, with this kind of disaster. And I, but I I knew about the teacher in space. I knew it was going to happen. Everybody knew about that. And so what I remember very clearly is thinking her children watched her die. Even at eight years old, that was my thought. And my next thought was, Her students watched her die because I knew that many, many, even though we hadn't watched the launch at school, I knew many, many school children had watched the launch and I knew that her students that she was teaching and her own children were watching the launch. I don't know how I knew that, but I did. And that is, that's what I felt. That's all I remember feeling about it. I remember watching the news. We watched the news in my house. We were one of those households that had the news on every night. And I remember watching the news and I very clearly remember seeing the president speak, President Reagan. I Now I can tell you many things from his speech. I'm sure at that time I didn't remember what he said, but I remember watching him speak. So that, that's are my main memories of the Challenger disaster. Now at the time I only really knew about the teacher, Krista McAuliffe, and I think because that flight was the teacher flight, it gets overshadowed. I'm sorry, the rest of the crew gets overshadowed. Now, in my adulthood, I am low-key obsessed with Challenger. As a matter of fact, Challenger is kind of what started me on the road to creating my own disaster podcast because after the Netflix doc 
on Challenger came out a couple years ago, which I highly recommend. I watched it a million times and then I wanted to start listening to podcasts about Challenger to learn more. And then that kind of just led me, even though I've always been fascinated by disasters, that's kind of what led me down the disaster podcast path. So I want to um, just mention the names of the whole crew because I don't like it that they are overshadowed by Krista McAuliffe, the teacher in space. And I know that Krista McAuliffe herself would not want that for her crewmates. So let me tell you um, just the names of all of the crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger. We had the commander, Dick Scobie, who was a very experienced astronaut, and the pilot, Mike Smith. They had mission specialist Ron McNair, who was the second African-American, I believe, in space, and Ellison Onizuka, who was, I believe, the first um, Asian-American in space, and Judy Resnick, a very accomplished engineer, and payload specialist Greg Jarvis, and of course, Krista McAuliffe, who was also a payload specialist. So that is the Challenger crew, the first lives NASA ever lost in space or in flight, because they didn't quite make it to space. Um, the Challenger exploded 73 seconds after launch. So those are my first, that's my first like disaster memory at eight years old in second grade of the Space Shuttle Challenger. And I'm sure I will cover that again in full because it was a very important, uh, it was an important moment in my childhood, informative in some ways. So, all right, let's move on to my teenagerhood. I was a teen in the 90s. And let me tell you what, it was amazing. I became a teenager in 1990 and I turned uh, 20 in 1997. So like I really... The night I was totally like turned 13 in 1990, turned 20 in the 90s. I was a teenager through and through in the 90s. I loved the 90s. But on April 19th, 1995, I had another kind of very memorable, memorable disaster moment happen when I learned about the Oklahoma City bombing. And I remember where I was. When I first heard about it, I was sitting in our school library. I, w I had homeroom in the library. I don't remember if I was it was during homeroom or if I was in the library for some other reason. Um, it did happen pretty early in the day. Um, so I think that I was in homeroom because I think Oklahoma is on probably on central time. But in, in any case... A guy I graduated with, very nice guy, Bill Kirshner. Hey, Bill, don't know where you are. Um, hope you're listening. Came in to the library and said something to the effect of a building, a huge building was just bombed in Oklahoma City. And that's all I remember about finding out. I don't remember when I learned the details. But again, we were a family that watched the news and... 168 people were killed in the Oklahoma City bombing, and I vividly remember, and I'm sure anyone who was alive at this time in the United States probably remembers seeing pictures of very hurt children being carried out of this building. Um, there's a very famous picture of a firefighter holding a dead uh, baby who was probably about 14 months old. I believe her name was Bailey. And... 
uh, it's not necessarily gruesome, although there was plenty. Of, she definitely had a lot of blood on her. But I, I that will never leave my mind. And I remember as, um, I was, I was, yeah, I was seventeen at the time. Uh, just remember as a seventeen-year-old being very. I was impacted by that photo and by the fact that so many children had been killed, that, that this person, I know, had bombed a building with a daycare in it. That was, that had a big impact on me. Uh, that was the part of the story that I, as a 17-year-old girl, remembered and felt because I, I babysat a ton. I loved kids. Um, I just couldn't fathom that someone would murder children like that and then I I don't really remember much about the manhunt I know there was a lot of speculation at first that it was terrorism um, from a foreign nation or a foreign group rather I should say Um, perhaps Muslim terrorists but then of course it turned out to be our homegrown terrorists so I do remember I do remember seeing Timothy McVeigh on the news and I remember some of the shock over it being an American. But after that, the memories just fade away. I don't remember anything until his trial and execution, you know, years later. So what I remember the most is the children. It just really, really affected me that someone would knowingly bomb a building with a daycare in it to like make a point I just it still boggles my mind but as a teenager you're trying to figure the world out and figure out your place in it and I just could not wrap my head around that and it's it's still difficult obviously but yeah that's just what I remember as a 17 year old being like what is happening like and how could this happen now I was a junior in high school and the that was a busy time for me it was um I just finished a big role in a musical the high school music the Annie had a lead and then I was moving on I was you know getting ready to do summer summer fun things and get my senior pictures done and you know I moved on it was right before prom so it's it's weird still in life how things happen and then you still have to keep going. You still have to do your day to day. But as a kid, even though that greatly affected me, I still moved on pretty quickly. And yeah, that's pretty much all I remember. So that's my memories of Oklahoma City, which again, I'm sure I will cover in the future. It is another case that I have read a lot about and watched a lot of documentaries about. And still remains obviously one of the worst days in our country's history so all right our next disaster that I have clear clear serious memories of may not be a disaster to you it was definitely a disaster to me it was definitely a disaster to the people of the United Kingdom it was the August 31st 1997 death of Princess Diana Diana Princess of Wales Now, as a kid, starting from about age 12 or 13, I was obsessed with royalty. I read every book I could get my hands on about any European royal families, past and present. Um, 
of course, the royal family of England, the Windsors. Uh, Princess Grace of Monaco was totally obsessed with her because she was an American. The uh, former Russian czars, like the last czar and his family. Any any royal family that they wrote a book about, I was trying to read it. So I loved Princess Diana when she married Prince Charles, now King Charles III. In 1981, I was uh, not quite four years old, but I remember it. And my mom, even my parents' names are Charles and Diane, not Diana, but Diane. And my my mom even had like a book about Diana Spencer, the future Princess of Wales, or a book about the royal wedding or something. I remember looking at it over and over and over again. So um, I can remember the wedding and the hullabaloo surrounding it. So I always loved Diana. And when their marriage started to famously break apart and the affair with Camilla came out, I was like squarely team Diana. Um, when her book came out, like not her book, but the one she helped with, even though she never it was never admitted that she helped with it till after her death. Like I read that. I read anything I could get my hands on and I was totally team Diana. I was like, Charles is the worst. She's the best. She's amazing. She was so beautiful. She did all this humanitarian work. I just loved her. So I definitely remember where I was when I heard the news of her death. I was a sophomore in college, had just started my sophomore year of college. I um, came home for the weekend because my boyfriend still lived in Dayton, where my parents lived, where I was from. He's now my husband, so I don't regret I don't regret going to college with my high school boyfriend because reader, I married him. <laughs> but anyway, I had come home and I was at his house. I was at my husband's parents' house where he lived. I'm sorry, he was my boyfriend then. Whatever. You know what I'm saying. And it was about 1130 or midnight. I was driving home and I heard on the radio, I was just listening to our local like rock music, pop music radio station. And they broke in and said, Diana, Princess of Wales, has been in a car accident and she's reported dead. So I didn't hear like the first reports of just the accident. I I heard about it when she had indeed been declared dead. And I was devastated. Like I could not believe it. I was driving. I'm sure I cried. Um, I probably like called Bobby when I got home, even though he was probably asleep and I shouldn't have been calling his house at that late hour. I can't remember. But Bobby being my husband. Um I was totally devastated. Like, I just remember the just feeling the utter shock being glued to the TV for reports. We did not have uh, anything but dial-up internet back then. So I had to watch the news, but all the channels were showing, you know, the people in mourning bringing, you know, tons and tons and tons of flowers to Kensington Palace and Buckingham Palace and everywhere else. So I just followed the news like crazy that whole weekend um, and then I went back to school. I only went to school two and a half hours away from home. So I went back to school and her funeral the next week was my 20th birthday and it was on a weekend. And so I got up at like, you know, three or four in the morning on my 20th birthday to watch the funeral. And I had brought a bunch of friends home from college to celebrate my birthday. And we all slept in my family room in my parents' house. And we 
you know, I was like, okay, I'm getting up at, you know, three in the morning to watch the funeral. You guys don't have to watch it, but I am going to be up and the TV's going to be on. And so most of my friends, I think, um, and my boyfriend at the time, who's not my husband, he came over in the middle of the night. He's him and a bunch of college girls together watching Princess Diana's funeral. And oh my goodness, I was so sad, you guys. I remember watching Harry and William walk behind the casket. I remember seeing the bouquet of flowers on top of the casket with a card that said mummy that Harry had placed there. That word mummy just broke, just broke my heart over and over again. Like this child has lost his mother. Ooh. Um, and yeah. I remember the whole controversy about the queen not like making a public statement um, until way late. But when she did finally make a statement, it was very good. And yeah, I just was I watched as much coverage as I possibly could have could. And I just devoured it all because I, I adored her. And to this day, I adore her. And I yeah, I think her loss was a huge, huge tragedy. And she also her her boyfriend Dodi Fayed was killed and the driver was killed. Um, he was super drunk, so um, I don't particularly mourn the other two, even though I think each loss of life is tragic. But man, I'm still real sad about Princess Diana. I cannot imagine what her life would be like today if she was alive. Like your ex husband is king. Um, I wonder if Harry would still be within the royal family, like a working royal living in the UK, if she was alive. Like, I just wonder, I just, it just changed a lot of things. So yeah, rest in peace, Diana. You were beautiful. You were loved. You did a lot of great things. And to me, teenage girl, young adult, I definitely looked up to you and idolized you. And yeah, thanks for, thanks for sparkling and shining while you were here. All right. So that was a major disaster for me at 20 years old. So now let's move on to the big one of my adult life. 9-11, September 11th, 2001. This is something that I don't know if I will ever cover 9-11 on the podcast because it would have to be so many episodes. And I'm not saying I couldn't do it, but um, I don't know if I will. We'll see. Like, it's one that's definitely been covered and covered and covered and covered. So it's not like people really need to hear, like, my take on it or my research. But um, yeah, we'll see. I don't know if I'll do it or not. But I will tell you about my personal memories of it. So my birthday is September 5th. I had just turned 24 on September 11th, 2001. And I was at work when I heard about it. When I was that year, I was working uh, as the promotions manager for our local hockey, local professional hockey team, my minor league hockey team called the Dayton Bombers. They no longer exist. But if you remember the Dayton Bombers, give me a shout I loved going to the games. Um, I mean, I had to go to all the games, but even before I worked there, I loved going to the games when I was a teenager. My brother used to take me all the time. Loved going as a young adult. They were really fun. So I worked there. I, I got a job there and it was fun. And our offices were in the arena where the games were held. And it is called the Nutter Center. It's the local arena for the college where my son goes, Wright State University. So it's a government building, technically. Um, our offices did not have televisions. Um, just a really small couple of rooms in an arena. 
on the top floor. And so shortly after nine, someone came down, someone from our office came into my office and said, you need to come down to the main offices of the arena and see what's going on on TV. So I went down and what I remember seeing is both the towers on fire. Um, So both planes had already hit and I didn't know anything about it. So I asked, and I don't know, the weird thing about it is we went to the main offices of the arena. I did not really know the people that worked in the front office. I could not tell you one of their names now. I think I did know their names and we were like, hi, friendly wave, you know, whatever. But so I shared this moment with all of these, some of the people that I worked with that I knew, but these, most of these people were strangers to me basically. And now I could not even tell you one of their names or what they looked like. Um, but there was a couple ladies in there that worked in the arena main offices. And I said, what happened? And they said, some people hijacked some planes and ran them into the towers. And me being a naive, sheltered, young 24-year-old girl, I said, did they let the people off first? Like, that's what I asked. Because where when I, growing up, a hijacking was... Okay, you take control of a plane, then you land it somewhere, you get your demands met, and you let all the people off, and then you you fly on the plane to somewhere else where wherever you demanded that they take you. That's how a hijacking went. A hijacking was not running a plane into a building or crashing a plane into the ground. Hijacking was you take a plane, you make some demands, you get your demands met, and then you let the people off. So I said, did they let the people off first? And one of the ladies in the from the main office just looked at me and she shook her head slowly side to side in a no gesture. I just remember she she had eye contact with me the whole time and her eyes were so sad. And she just shook her head back and forth. No. And I could not understand. I just couldn't understand that people would not let the people off the plane first. Uh, there was a lot that, of shock that day for the American people because, you know, you were born after 9-11. That's what a hijacking is to you. I asked my kids, um, I have a 19-year-old, 16-year-old, well, she'll be 17 by the time this, well, no, she still won't be 17 yet, but she'll be a couple days away from 17 when this airs. And I, um, I asked my older two at one point on the anniversary of 9-11, because I've always talked to them about it. Um, I asked them what they thought a hijacking was and what they said was you you get control of a plane and you run it into a building. And I was like, no, that's not what it was. So anyway, there was a lot of shock as the American people, myself included, tried to absorb exactly what was happening. Shortly thereafter, I think I was still in the offices when the Pentagon was hit, but I am not sure. But shortly thereafter, we were sent home because we lived, we worked in a government building. We also, this building is extremely close to the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in in, in Dayton. So um, the, the university is called Wright State. The Air Force Base is called Wright-Patterson. So anyway, they're very close and uh, all named after the great Wright brothers. But I was, we, I was sent home and I didn't want to go home because I didn't want to be alone. I was, a newly, uh, you know, my husband and I had been married for um, like a year and a half at this point and he was at work and he wasn't getting sent home. So I went to my mom and dad's house and they were um, both retired from teaching at that point. 
and I was with them most of the day and uh, we watched the coverage together. I was really grateful to not be alone because we didn't know like things kept, ha kept happening. So the Pentagon happened and then towers were falling and then there was another flight. And at one point they said the flight was over Cleveland. This is flight 93. I'm talking about the one that crashed in a field in Pennsylvania. Well, Cleveland's four hours away from me, but it's still Ohio. So we were like, oh my gosh, like, you know, could this be happening here? Um, and then we just sat and watched until finally things became clear that like Flight 93 was down in Pennsylvania, that, that there were no more, um, didn't appear to be any more hijackings like all planes in the United States were on the ground. And we just, I sat with my parents and watched in stunned horror. Uh, I one other thing I remember is I was watching with my mom and dad still when a picture of Barbara Olson came on the screen and I did not know who that was, but the reporter started talking and said, you know, we have news about Barbara Olson. And my mom goes, what about her at the TV? Like, what about her? Because my mom knew who she was. So she was a conservative political commentator. I believe she was a lawyer. She wrote books. She wrote a book about Hillary Clinton. Um, she was married to, the Solicitor General of the United States, Ted Olson, who so he was working, you know, in the George W. Bush administration. And so they they put her picture on the news and said Barbara Olson was one of the passengers on American Flight 77 that crashed into the Pentagon. So I remember that that meant something to my mom because my mom knew who that was. And um, later we learned that she was one of the passengers who had called. She had called her husband twice from the flight trying to figure out what to do, but she just did not have enough time to do anything. So, um, yeah, that's what I remember. Later, after my husband got off work and went home, we had had plans for friends to come over that night. And we were like, called our friends. Do you guys still want to meet up? And they were like, sure. So I went to the store to get ice cream. This is so weird. We ordered pizza. I went to the store to get ice cream for dinner for my friends even on this day. And I can remember thinking at the time, this is so weird that I'm going to the store to get ice cream when all this is happening. And I remember on the way to the store, I passed a gas station and the lines at the gas station were huge because we were totally, um, you know, everybody was totally freaking out about gas prices going up or gas not being available because of the tragedy. And, um, it was just very surreal. Another weird thing that happened was before our friends got there, I think it was around five o'clock in the evening. My husband was already home, five, five thirty, six o'clock. We heard a sonic boom and our windows in our house rattled. So we ran outside and there were other neighbors outside across the street going like, what's going on? What's going on? And my husband was like, man, maybe we need to go like get out of town, like <laughs> get somewhere in the country. And we later learned that that was a, a jet coming from right Patterson Air Force Base and it had taken off so quickly and made that sonic boom because it was going to escort Air Force One um, wherever Air, when Air Force One flew over um, Ohio over that airspace so that scared the poop out of all of us and it just brings it home to how for that day that day was so uncertain you really didn't know what was coming next or where it was going to be then our friends came over, we had pizza, we had ice cream, and hey Beth and Brian, how are you guys? We um, we watched the news coverage together. We I remember seeing World Trade uh, 4, I can't remember, Building 7, I think. 
I think it's building seven. It was like a 43 story building. I remember that collapsing early that evening and just watching all the horror at Ground Zero and Pentagon and seeing the crater in the field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where Flight 93 went down and just starting to, for news, tr- starting to trickle in about all the calls that were made from the planes. Um, and then, of course, seeing the president speak that night. I remember that vividly. So, and the days following were such a blur. I did not want to leave the house for days. I was very scared to leave the house. I did not want to go back to work. Um, I just felt very, very insecure. And like I was 24 years old before that really didn't have a care in the world, except for paying bills and a car payment, stuff like that. Bobby and I didn't have any kids yet. Um, but it was, I was scared. I was really scared. And it took, you know, a couple of weeks for me to really feel like, okay, I'm going to be all right. I can leave the house. I can uh, go about my daily life. So yeah, that was wild. And I'm still very obsessed with September 11th. Um, every year I watch some of the live news coverage because I on YouTube because I don't want to forget how I felt that day. I don't want to forget how any of us felt. Um, even though it's not good, like it wasn't a good feeling, I don't want to forget. I just want to honor the memories of all those who lost their lives. I want to honor the memories of the heroes and the first responders. I I just, yeah, I'll, I will never forget, but I, I want to keep re- revisiting their stories and their memories every year. So I always read, every other year I read the book 102 Minutes, which I highly recommend. Um, and I, I watch all the documentaries that I can find. My son, Josh, who is editing this, hey babe, is 19. And when he t- turned 18, I made him watch a 9-11 documentary with him because I was like, you need to understand what happened and what kind of world that you live in, what kind of world you were born into. So when my daughter is 18, I'm going to make her watch one too. Now, Josh is a film student. He watched a whole five episode series with me called 9-11 One Day in America, which is very, very good. It's the national, it came from Nat Geo, um, but it was on Hulu when we watched it. And I think it still is. If you want to check it out, highly recommend. It's amazing. I have watched it four times. Um, Just such amazing storytelling. And so I wanted Josh to watch that because he's a film student. I knew he would appreciate it. And I wanted him to have a really full and complete picture of what happened. My daughter is very sensitive. I do plan to make her watch one because she needs to as an American. But I will probably just like have her watch like a one hour um, maybe not as deep and traumatic and emotional documentary about it. But um, I want my children to understand how important and significant that day was and is and will always be. So I'm going to make sure they know about it. And I suggest that if you were not alive when it happened or you were very young, I suggest you look into it. Read a book. Read 102 Minutes read The Only Plane in the Sky um, by Garrett Graff. Maybe I will put some books for you in the show notes that I recommend. Chief Joseph Pfeiffer, who was the first fire chief on the scene, he wrote a really good memoir about it too. I don't remember what it's called, but I'll put it in the show notes. Um, And I'll also put some of my recommended documentaries in the show notes. Like I said, I've watched every single documentary that I could possibly find. And that started way back, but way back when, when they first started coming out. Um, 
the the kind of definitive documentary about it. I don't want to really want to call it definitive because it doesn't cover all angles, but the really big one that came out a year after it happened is called 9-11 and it's by um, Jules and Gideon Noday and they were two French documentary makers. They're now U.S. citizens who were in a New York firehouse filming, making a documentary about a probational or first year rookie firefighter. Um, and so they just happened to be on scene that day when it happened and caught everything. They were with Chief Joseph Pfeiffer, who was the first chief in the towers. And um, so everything from a New York standpoint is in that one. And I highly recommend that one as well. All right. So that's my memories of 9-11. Very, very traumatic and important and just something that I will always, always carry with me. Um, and every, every year I remember the survivors and I, um, speak their names. Now, obviously now I don't speak all 3000. I'm, I'm sorry. I speak the victims names. I don't speak all 3000, but I, I celebrate survivor stories. And I remember, um, stories of those who lost their lives because it's important and it's important to remember the way our country came together after that. It really was beautiful. And it's something that's sorely, sorely lacking today. Um, as far as our ability to find common ground in being Americans, that's something that's sorely, sorely lacking and it's not something my children have witnessed. And I really hope that it doesn't take another monumental tragedy for us to get there. But uh, it certainly did bring us together at that time. All right. Those are my personal disaster memories. Hopefully I wasn't too silly for you. Um, and kept it respectful, but I really appreciate you listening. I would love to hear some of your personal disaster memories. So if you want to DM me at disaster queen pod on Instagram or send me an email at disasterqueenpod at gmail.com. Um, I'd be really interested in hearing your experiences as well and your own personal memories of some of these tragedies, or if you're older than me, maybe some of those, or if you were at a disaster, if, in the mid 2010s, you did not have small children and were able to fully uh, engage with the disaster that occurred and you have really strong memories of that. I would love to hear that as well. So I'd love to interact with you. Please DM me, email me. Um, I'd love to continue this conversation about your personal memories. And as always, thank you so much for being here and listening. I hope you will keep listening as I come at you with the first episode of season two on November 16th. And I will have a guest on that episode. I can't wait for you to meet her and hear us chatting about the another big disaster. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I will give you a hint. It did occur during my lifetime, but maybe not during a lot of yours, depending on your age. So Stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for supporting me during this first season. These first 14 episodes, it means more than I can say. And I would really appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen and give me a five-star rating and write a review. It's so helpful. Helps other people find the podcast and share the disaster dream with us. So please, 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 please do that for me. I will beg and I really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for hanging in there with me. Stay safe, you guys, and don't be a disaster. The Disaster Queen podcast is written, researched, and produced by me, Jenny Rapson, The Disaster Queen. Original theme music and sound engineering by Robert Rapson. Editing is by Josh Rapson. 
You can get him for your editing needs at joshrapson.edits at gmail.com. Original podcast artwork is by Ken Clark, and disasterqueen.com website design is by Hello Chicky Design. Check her link in the show notes for all your site design needs. All show notes can be found at disasterqueen.com. Got an episode suggestion? Email me at disasterqueenpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow at disasterqueenpod on Instagram and at disasterqpod on Twitter.